Mandy, uh, his three daughters, Lily, Juliet, Emily. Dustin came to Christ in Baltimore. He also was a member at the Garden Church and a good friend of mine. Had some great fun years together, standing by side, praising the Lord. And he's uh, at this moment planting the church, Anchor Church. So um, if we all can just praise, um, pray, pray that he have a successful mission, God's grace, strength, and knowledge on that mission. And I'm not going to hold him no more longer. Without further ado, Mr. Dustin Copper. No, 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 that's fine, that's fine. Last time I was here, I came to that conference, and I noticed that Doug Logan got to speak on the ground, uh-huh. but Mez, who were about the same height, had to come up here. So I was telling Jess, I was like, I don't know, I feel persecuted right now. The short guy has to come on stage. But thank you, Kenny, for that introduction. Kenny actually gives me a lot of street cred, because when I'm playing basketball, you know, I'll always be like, hey, man, I knew a guy that could take Carmelo one-on-one, you know? So I always, I always throw that out there, and he could beat Carmelo, too. So, As you guys have heard, my name's Dustin Carpenter. I am the lead pastor, church planter of Anchored Church in Cambridge, Maryland. I have a wife and three kids, Lily, Juliet, and Emily. Uh, Mandy and I were talking on the way here. Juliet's six, and Emily's four. I feel like the last time we were here, that's the ages of Jaden and Eden. You guys were, like, tiny, you know? So it's, like, crazy. I think Jaden's taller than me now, so short problems. Anyway, so you guys kind of know my story. I, uh, I grew up in Southern Maryland, a uh, hostile atheist. was just completely against the church, against Jesus, and especially against Christians. wanted nothing to do with any, anything religious. And I was also extremely racist, hated African-American people. So here's this atheist, racist guy, and through God's providence, I was brought to Baltimore. I did undergrad school at the University of Baltimore over here. It was the only school that would give me a full-ride scholarship, and I was like, man, I really don't want to go because there's black people there. How will I get through? Maybe if I could just, you know, push forward, I can get through it four years and move on. God is a God of irony, though. I have come to find out in my life. And it was about a couple months into my undergrad uh, that I hit rock bottom. And you know what? I was like, maybe I was working at the UB bookstore at the time, and they had a Bible on clearance. And I was like, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll give the Bible a try. I'll see what it actually says. And so I open up to the Gospel of Matthew. And, you know, Matthew's a very intellectual gospel. It's always showcasing how the Pharisees are trying to outsmart Jesus. And so I'm reading Matthew, rooting for the Pharisees. Oh, you know, they're going to trick him one day, you know? <laughs> Finally get to the part where, like, the Pharisees are like, all right, you know, if, if Jesus chooses this option, we got him. If Jesus chooses this option, though, the Romans got him. And I've never read the story. And I'm like, oh, they got him. He's done, you know? And I read the story, and they go, the Pharisees approach Jesus, and Jesus says, well, give me a coin. So Jesus gets a coin, says, whose face is on this? Caesar's, okay, give on to Caesar's what is Caesar's, give on to God's what is God's. And the Pharisees challenged him no more, and neither did I. 
I got down on my knees right there. And, you know, at the time, my, you, some of you, if you grew up in the 90s, the only form of prayer I knew came from a movie called Angels in the Outfield. All right? There's, there's that scene where the boy is praying to God, like, God, if you're real, like, let the angels win the World Series. And so I'm like, all right, is that how I pray? All right, God, you know, if I think you're there, here's my life. Two days later, a young man named Brian Sessions came up to me. Now, here was this wrestling in my heart of I had fear and hatred towards this young man, but something about Jesus was doing a work in me. And Brian came up to me and said, hey, and that punk, Brian, he's never here when I'm here. That guy came for that conference waiting to hang out with him. Ugh. Anyway. He was here last week. Yeah. I'll just stop by his house later, you know. Um, Brian comes up to me. He's like, hey, are you a Christian? I was like, whoa. I was like, is that what happened two days ago? Like, oh, man, I'm one of those people now, you know. But it was through Brian's love for Jesus and his love for me, that my hatred started melting away. And I realized that I cannot be a follower of Christ and hate my black brothers and sisters. And so God's irony, perfect enough, we, the only, at the time, the only religious group on campus was an anti-religious group. So Brian and I were going to start a Bible study. Here's me, a two-day-old Christian. I have no idea what I was going to do. Two months of planning, we say our first Bible study, we're just going to give our testimony. I was like, Brian, i got to let you know, I used to hate you just for being you, you know, and you're better at basketball than me, but he's not here, so you cannot tell him I said that, all right? <laughs> I was just going to share my testimony, how Jesus changed my heart. We sat in a room, 40 people showed up, and I was the only white guy, and I thought, this is God's irony at work <laughs> once again. Now, the garden comes into play. I, I fell in love with Jesus, but I still hated the church, and I'll tell a little bit of this story a little bit later on in my sermon but a guy who was coming to our Bible study, he, uh, his name was Ben, he was like, hey, would it be okay if I brought my pastor to come make sure you're not a cult leader? And I was like, okay, sure, that's the most flattering thing I've ever heard, you know? And in my mind, pastor was still this old man wearing the clerical collar that you kind of see on TV. The next Bible study comes, and here walks in this 29-year-old who was wearing skinny jeans and had a mullet and a mohawk at the time. And I was like, this guy's a pastor? This is crazy. Joel's love uh, for Jesus and his love for me brought me to the garden. And I was one of the, you know, I loved, I always think back to that time. That was, that rocked my world. You guys, this church rocked my world because what I saw in Acts is what I saw here. The love that I see between you guys that I still see today through Facebook and through Joel's updates, it's the same love I felt so many years ago. And so you guys have always, I tell my core team, our church, you know, if the reason I'm doing something, it's probably just because Joel did it. So if you're mad at me, just send him an email, you know? <laughs> it's, it's an easy way out for me. There you go. Yeah. Oh. But let's break into Jonah, all right? So we're going to explore Jonah chapter 1. It's kind of cool being here because it's like coming home in a sense. I see a lot of familiar faces. And, you know, if 
If you guys want to thank me later, you can thank me that uh, the reason Leo is here is because of me. You know, Leo was part of my old, it was part of the next church I was a part of, and, you know, Joel needed somebody to step in, and we were like, hey, you know, like, we'll trade you Leo for three first-round draft picks, you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Jonah, chapter one, we're just looking at verses one to three today. Follow along with me as I read out of the ESV the extra spiritual version. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. King Jesus, you are good, you are awesome, and you are holy. Lord, we praise you that you have gathered us here this morning to worship you, to sing songs that praise you, to read scriptures that explain and declare how awesome and gracious and compassionate you are to people like me, to people who, who don't know you, to people like Jonah, to people like the Ninevites. Lord, we praise you that we get to open your word and see what you have for us. Lord, I pray that today that the words I speak that they glorify and honor you, that the words I speak uh, soak into their hearts. And Lord, if there's anything wrong I say that it just goes away, it just leaves the mind, that only your message sticks in our hearts. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, Jonah is probably one of the most popular stories in the Bible. If you've never read the Bible, most often you probably know the story of Jonah. As an atheist, I would make fun of Christians because of the Jonah story, even though I had never read Jonah myself. It's deep within our culture, either if you've read Moby Dick or seen the movie uh, Pinocchio, or actually my four-year-old and I, we were watching Avengers just yesterday, all right? And there's a scene where the aliens are invading New York, and there's this big giant whale monster, and whale monster alien thing, and Iron Man's like trying to blow it up, but his like missiles and lasers are not piercing the outside of this whale monster. So finally, Iron Man goes, Jarvis, which is his inner computer, he goes, Jarvis, have you ever heard the story of Jonah? And Jarvis goes, Sir, I wouldn't consider him a role model. And Iron Man flies into the whale monster, and he explodes, and his, you know, guts splatter everywhere. Sadly, that is not part of the Jonah story. You know, that would be kind of a cool uh, section where Jonah dons some armor and flies out. But we just have this story, which is probably better. The story of Jonah, if you guys don't know, is a story about this prophet who is called by God to go to a foreign land, Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrians. And he would go to this land and tell them to repent. 
But instead, no, Jonah's like, no, I'm good. I'm actually going to catch this ship, and I'm going to go to the farthest point I can away from my calling. Which is weird. Often, when we feel like if God spoke to us and gave us, like, hey, here's what you should do, I mean, most of us are like, God, please tell us that. We want to be like Jonah in that sense of like, yes, tell us. But Jonah has the opposite reaction and runs as far as he can. But God is a gracious, compassionate, but disciplinarian God. And he runs after Jonah. Jonah catches a ship, the storms come in, and there's these pagan sailors who are trying to save Jonah's life, even though Jonah's not trying to save theirs. And finally, in the end, Jonah is cast into the sea. And he descends into the deep where a great big fish swallows him up. Tim Keller says this about the fish. Despite the literary sophistication of the text, many modern readers still dismiss the work because the text tells us that Jonah was saved from the storm when swallowed by a great fish. How you respond to this will depend on how you read the rest of the Bible. If you accept the existence of God and the resurrection of Christ, a far greater miracle, then there is nothing particularly difficult about reading Jonah this way. Certainly, many people today believe all miracles are impossible, but that skepticism is just that, belief that itself can't be proven. Not only that, but the text doesn't show evidence of the author having made up the miracle account. A fiction writer ordinarily adds supernatural elements in order to create excitement or, or spectacle and to capture the reader's attention. But this writer doesn't capitalize on the event at all in that way. The fish is mentioned only in two brief verses, and there are no descriptive details. It's reported more as a simple fact of what happened. So let's not get distracted by the fish. What Keller's getting at is say, if you just focus on the fish, you miss the broader point of what's happening in the story of Jonah. Jonah's in the fish. He's in the belly. He prays this kind of half-repentance prayer. You know, he's kind of got the right words. You know, he's a prophet. He knows the right words to say, but uh, you could tell there's something else going on that maybe his heart's not fully there yet. But God tells the, vi the fish to vomit him up. And so he comes back to Nineveh. God calls him again. Arise, go to Nineveh. And Jonah goes into the city of Nineveh. And in three days, he preaches a message of, yet in 40 days, this town will be destroyed. That's it. 40 days, and this town will be destroyed. No message of grace. No message of repentance. No message of God. Just, hey, 40 days, and you guys are done. Jonah leaves the city to go sit up on a hill. And as he's traveling to this hill to watch this city explode in fire and brimstone, like you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, the entire city puts on sackcloth and ashes fast, and they repent. Now, I'm thinking if Joel was standing right here and 120,000 people said, hey, we repent of our sin, man, that's a good day, Right? That's pretty awesome. But Jonah doesn't think that way. Jonah sits on the hill waiting for this town to be destroyed. And he gets in this argument with God. Like, I knew, God, that you were grace. 
I knew you were gracious and compassionate. He literally quotes Exodus. I knew you would save them. Gosh, what the heck? And Jonah just whines. And the story ends that way, with God coming down to Jonah and just saying, Jonah, don't you get it? Don't you know what I'm about? But we don't hear Jonah's answer. Jonah, I often, this is probably the third time I've preached through the book of Jonah. And the reason that is, is because I often see Jonah as really just a reflection of me and my heart. How often I don't understand God's grace. How often I don't understand my own heart and my own sin. And Jonah is this clear call to me to not be like him. But too often I look in the mirror and realize I am Jonah. Jonah's story, behind it all, is ultimately a story about running from God. And if you look close enough into the character of Jonah, you can't help but see your own reflection staring back at you. The story of Jonah is a story of running from your neighbors, running from your enemies, running from grace, running from mercy, and running from the one who created you, God himself. So I want to explore that today. The theme of running, especially in the story of Jonah. And I want to ask three questions that kind of talk about running from God. Why do we run from God? How do we run from God? And what happens when we run from God? What happens to us? So first, why do we run from God? If you look at the story of Jonah, you know, it, I would feel uh, almost um, satisfied. Am I allowed to do that? Can I stand right there? <laughs> You're giving me that stare like I was going to break it. I'll just stand right here. Um, running from God. Why do we run? Thank you, Joel. Thank you. Anyway, Jonah's going to this wicked nation, right? I mean, like, so my first thought is Jonah must be running because he's scared, all right? The Assyrians were like, I used to be a history teacher. The Assyrians were some of the most wicked people the planet has ever seen. Like Ted Bundy and ISIS have nothing on the Assyrians. All right? This was a group of people that proudly decapitated their enemies, stuck their heads on spears, and put them at the city gates. Can you imagine like, if I came into Baltimore today and there was heads of your enemies like, as you entered the city? Like, that's crazy but it's just everyday life for these Assyrians. And that's why God wanted to send this message of repentance, because their violence had gotten so bad, they were committing it against their own people. So I can understand, maybe, maybe Jonah was fearful, and that's why he ran. But at, you know, as I told the story, we come to find out that that's not the reason Jonah ran at first glance. We find out that, and it in a sense, maybe it was hatred. Maybe he just hated the Assyrians. And that could be so. I think that. But I ultimately think the reason Jonah ran is because in his own heart, he wants to call the shots. He complains to God. You are gracious and compassionate. He did not want to show that to them. 
If I can just get far away from God, man, I get my way. The Assyrians are done. Why do we run from God? It's ultimately because we want to be the king. We want to be the king of our lives. And oftentimes, we want to be the king of other people's lives. We want to control people. We want to control everything around us. I mean, the, the, the reality of it is that's what the Bible says about us. Yep. That sin is ultimately us saying, hey, God, you're not a good king. We're better. Right. We want to sit on the throne. We are a better king than you. R.C. Sproul says this, sin is cosmic treason. You guys know what treason is? Treason is when you go against the throne of your homeland. I always thought it was weird that treason, you instantly got capital penalty death. You're not staying in jail for years and years. You get the death penalty when it comes to treason. Why? Because you're going against the throne and your sin is affecting everyone else in the kingdom. Is that not what Adam and Eve did? They looked at God and said, we are better kings than you. And look at what their sin did. It brought death into the world. We want to sit on the throne. That is what Jonah wanted. I want to be the king over the Ninevites. I want to decide their fate. So we run from God. Because part of us knows, deep down, that that's not actually true. And we think if we can just get away from God far enough, we could still have our own little kingdom. We could still have our own little castle with our trinkets of sin here and there. Sproul says, sin is cosmic treason. Even the slightest sin that a creature commits against his creator does violence to the creator's holiness, his glory, and his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us. As such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. Why do we run? Because we want to call the shots. We want to be king. How do we run? There's typically two ways when we run from God we kind of go down two different paths. Tim Keller has said this as, you know, you either go down the path of religion or the path of irreligion. You go down the path of hard rules and laws, and if I'm good enough, I can get my own salvation. Or I'm going to live the best life I can and not follow any rules. I'm going to make my own rules. And we kind of see this clearly uh, uh, described in the story of the prodigal son, right? The story of the prodigal son is a story Jesus tells where there's a, you know, there's a father and he has two sons. One uh, takes his dad's money and just lives this rampant, sinful life of drinking and, uh, and sex and everything in between. And then he comes back home because his life has, those, that life has destroyed him inside out. So he comes back home, he finds his father, and his father shows grace to him. But then we see the other son. And the other son's like, how dare you? Why would you bring him back into our home? 
He's stolen my money. Not his father's money. He's stolen my money. You slaughtered my calf to celebrate his homecoming. And in both ways, they're ways of saying, I want to call the shot. I either want to live a life of lust and excess, gluttony, greed, slothfulness, or I want to live a life of pride, of feeling like I'm better than everyone else. And usually that uh, comes out in wrath, this kind of wrath of how dare anybody lives other than the way I live. Irreligion or religion. Both paths lead to destruction, though. And it's interesting because, you know, I've lived both of those paths. I was the atheist, irreligious guy who did what I wanted when I wanted. And when I hit rock bottom finally, I saw the life I lived and how it destroyed me. It deformed me into somebody who I wasn't. But then I also lived the religious life, trying to follow the rules, trying to earn God's blessing. And anybody who did anything different than me, they were in the wrong. Thankfully, I had a good pastor who uh, kicked my butt a time or two. <laughs> I'll tell this story real quick. I was telling it the other day. My, um, my wife and I, uh, so, joined the garden. He became part of Campus Crusade for Christ up at Towson. Went on these mission trips and stuff, and um, we got married within, like, six months of meeting each other. It was really fast, you know? And uh, I remember Joel did our wedding. And I was, I, I make fun of Joel for having a mullet, but, you know, at the time, I had a mullet, too. And, um, you know, I was, I thought I was a stud because I was this 21-year-old who uh, wore pop collars and bathing suits and Nike high tops and had a mullet with a, back, you know, a backwards cap. And uh, I just thought I was the, uh, you know, the greatest thing out there. And... Uh, I think the Holy Spirit blinded my wife at the time to, like, maybe see the potential down the road, you know? And I didn't have a beard, so I looked like I was 15 or something, too, with all this happening. And, uh, you know, I was still a college student. Like, two months before I was getting married, I was living on my buddy's futon. Uh, if you guys know Mike Dibert and Laura Dibert, I was living on Mike's futon. And, uh, you know, I was like the creme of the crop, pretty much. Um, we got married, and about a month after we got married, Joel came up to me. Joel officiated our wedding. And Joel was like, hey, are you guys married? And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? Yeah, we are. He's like, good, act like it. Because I see you hanging out still being a bachelor over here instead of, uh, instead of loving your wife as Christ did. And I was like, oh, man. And I, that got my act in gear. Right, Mandy? Somewhat? Yeah? All right, cool. <laughs> That's good to know. But, but it was that pride that I needed kicked out of me. What path are you going down? 
We tend, even as followers of Christ, to be like Jonah. We tend to go one direction or the other. Sometimes it, it can be both, right? Sometimes in our lives we go down the path of, man, it's just one extra drink. Man, it's just, you know, one extra view on the internet. Hey, man, it's just one extra this. And the other way is, oh, man, I see how those Christians are living. They're idiots. Or, oh, I see how this person's living. And so it's just one thing after another. You need to be part of a local church to help you see where you fall, where you lean towards. You cannot do it on your own. Man, if Jonah had a friend who was wise and was like, hey, you are going down the wrong path. We wouldn't have the story of Jonah, but, you know, probably would have been helpful to him. He probably would have been uh, a little bit more happy that his story is not the way it is in the Bible. Why do we run? Because we want to be king. How do we run? We run towards religion or irreligion. And what happens when we run from God? What happens? If you look at those first couple verses in Jonah, it's interesting. It says, you know, God calls them, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let me ask you guys something. You're in a good, solid, biblically uh, sound church. Can you get away from the presence of the Lord? No. No. He is omnipresent, which means what? He's everywhere. Yeah. So how are you running from God? What was going on in Jonah's mind where he could think, man, yeah, I could get away from God? I mean, Jonah wasn't some, you know, ignorant, just coming to know the Bible kind of uh, teacher. This was a guy who knew the Torah inside and out. They had memorized the first five books of the Bible, which we see is why he quotes from it later on. Jonah knew his stuff. But often what happens when we run from God, two things happen. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. Despite knowing the right theology, Jonah instead said, nah, that's not how it's going to work this time. Because I'm the king. I'm different. You know, this time, I'm going to be able to get away from God. I'm going to exchange the truth about God. And we do that in our own lives, right? When we start justifying our sin, we often think, man, like, God's not going to be this mad at me. I, actually, I deserve it. Man, you know the suffering I've went through recently? Or, oh, man, you know, like, it's been hard. Just this, just this one time, just this one time, it won't be as bad. Or, you know what, I'll, 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 I'll repent in the morning. It'll be fine. He'll still love me. He'll still forgive me. The second thing that happens, if we look at the story of Jonah, as Jonah was running away from God, it says he kept descending. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa and found a ship. He paid the fare and went down into it. And we see this actually continue. He goes into 
the bottom of the ship. When he gets out into the ocean, he goes to the bottom of the ocean, gets swallowed by the fish, goes to the bottom of the fish. See, this is the, the hardest part of sin. At first, we exchange the truth and say, you know, sin's not going to affect us this time. But the more we do it, we start to not only not reflect the image of God like we're supposed to, we start reflecting the image of sin. It's kind of like, you know, an alcoholic when you see one, right? His face is all red, he's sweating, right? He's reflecting the sin on the outside of him. There's more subtle sins that we do within our hearts, but they start to reflect outward and how we treat people and how we look at people. As the going, as we keep deforming ourselves, as we keep descending into that sin, we will be caught. You cannot hide from it because it will start appearing outward that you can no longer escape it. We descend in looking more like our sin than our God. We all know this. In fact, the reason I started coming here was because of that. I was descending. You know, I had just became a Christian. I was on fire for Jesus. I was doing this Bible study. I was becoming part of Campus Crusade. I was doing all these great things. But within a year's time, I started burning out. I wasn't going to church. I wasn't being fed. I didn't have a community of people. Brian was always playing basketball. Still the case. <laughs> um, and I started that descent. Oh, man, a little, a little drink here will be fine. Oh, man, you know, like this. You know, I, you know, I'm not married to her, but it's okay. Finally. I hit rock bottom again. After a year's time, I had backslidden so far that after a night of indulging sin, I woke up the next morning, and I was like, look, God, if you're done with me, I get it. I, I completely get it. I can understand why you would want nothing to do with me. That's, what, that's how it feels often, you know? When we start calling our own shots, when we start going down these paths that God has not created for us, when we start justifying our sin and descending and start looking like our sin and not looking like our holy God, you will hit rock bottom and you will reach that point where it does not feel like you have any hope anymore. I didn't want to live anymore. I was done. But the gospel brings hope. The gospel brings hope. God, as Jonah says, is a gracious and compassionate God, both to people who run down the path of religion or down the path of irreligion. He's gracious and compassionate to all those who say, I don't want you as my king. I want to be my own king. And that's what happened to me. I woke up that morning. God, you must be done with me. There's no way you're going to want, love me anymore. I was living at College Park at the time, and uh, I was driving up here to go to school at UB, and I got in the car, and a buddy of mine called me. He said, hey, man, like, 
I, I was praying, and for some reason you came on my heart, and I just, I just had to tell you, God loves you, and he's not done with you. And I was like, oh, all right, that's, uh, that's exactly what I needed here. Let me tell you my life story right now, you know, and I'm like weeping, trying to drive up 95. Start putting the phone down, it starts ringing again. By the way, this was before it was illegal to talk on cell phones in your car. <laughs> so I pick up the phone again, and it's, it was my mentor. And he, uh, he's like, man, you were on my heart this morning. I just feel like I have to tell you, God loves you, and he's not done with you yet. Oh, <laughs> you know, and it was that message. And finally, I get to Baltimore, park the car, and it starts snowing. And I just read that verse in Isaiah that though your sins may be as red as scarlet, you will be made white as snow. And I, I get out of the car, and I'm just, I'm weeping like, God must still love me, but is it, is it true? And I literally bump into this guy who has a mullet and a mohawk and calls himself a pastor. <laughs> just met him a couple days before that. And I was like, Pastor Joel, you know, it, here's what's going on. And he looks at me, and he goes, it's freezing at that point. He goes, Dustin. You know, you were on my mind this morning. God loves you. He's not done with you yet. To all those who are sitting here, God loves you. He is not done with you yet. No matter how far you run from God and think you want to call your own shots, you've never gone far enough for him. If you think you've descended into your own sin, know this, Christ descended even further. You guys read it this morning in the Apostles' Creed. He descended to the grave. And the hope is this. He rose. He rose so that you could be risen. At the bottom of your heart, when you're deep in it, and your heart cries out to God, God hears that cry. He praises that hallelujah. He saves you at your most wicked that is the story of Jonah. He saved the Ninevites at their most wicked, and even at Jonah's most wicked times, God descended to rescue him. Amen. Salvation belongs to Jesus. Let's pray. Amen. King Jesus, you are good. You are awesome, and you are holy. Lord, how great a king that you are that you left your throne you descended to us despite us wanting to be on your throne. And you said, come, my children, let me save you. Let me raise you from the death and muck you've created. And I raise you to new life. New life that you are part of my kingdom now. Citizens, brothers and sisters, princes and princesses. We are daughters and sons of the king now. All because of you. And the length and the depth you went to reach us. Lord, I pray for those who are still running this morning that they know they cannot outrun you, that you are a greater distance runner than they are, that they will be found either in sin or in your grace. Lord, I pray that those who are running find themselves in your grace. Lord, we praise you and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.